Nutrition Reviews, Conversations with the Authors, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Douglas Tarrin, the Editor-in-Chief for Nutrition Reviews. I have the pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Emanuela Pania and Dr. Rola Hamoud from the University of Toronto. They wrote with their co-authors, Rebecca Simonian, Ruslan Kubant, and Harvey Anderson, a narrative review titled Folate Dose and Form During Pregnancy May Program Maternal and Fetal Health and Disease Risk. I found this paper to be of interest because it highlighted the importance of folate metabolism in one carbon cycle during pregnancy and also presented concerns about excess folate supplementation. In addition to just identifying what the concerns about excess folate is, they address the need for more research on what is the optimal folate dose and what forms of folate are most important to support a healthy pregnancy and long-term metabolic outcomes for mothers and children and that this research is urgently needed. I'm looking forward to hearing how they decided to write this paper and what future research they plan to do in this area. So um, welcome, Emanuela and Rola. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And why don't we just start off by having uh, Emanuela, who was the first author on this paper, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in nutritional sciences. Yeah, thank you very much, Douglas. Um, so as you mentioned, my name is Emanuela, but Rola will probably refer to me as Emmy. Um, <laughs> I originally completed my undergraduate training in behavior genetics and neurobiology. So that's a psychologist program, and I was always really excited about the interplay of genes and environment, and I wanted to translate that to actually become a behavioral therapist. Um, but I also grew up in a family uh, where it was very nutrition-focused. We lost my sister at a very young age. Um, she had a rare genetic metabolic condition, um, and nutrition was actually the only thing, um, or nutritional therapeutics was the only thing that could actually prevent her condition from progressing. Uh, so it became very, very clear to me at an early age that in certain cases, um, nutrition can be curative, but in all cases, um, it is supportive. So I found myself in nutritional sciences for my master's as well as my PhD with the awesome guidance of Harvey Anderson. Um, and today I am a postdoc in Jim Dowling's lab at Sick Kids Hospital in um, a slightly different area in the program of genetics and genomics. Uh, but through my research, I'm really am able to leverage um, my knowledge in nutrition in the area of rare muscle diseases. Oh, that's a really interesting transition from one field to the other and the integration of the field. I, I find that really good for our area of nutrition. Rola, um, why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are? Um, funny enough, I originally did not have an interest in nutrition when I was a teenager <laughs> applying to university. <laughs> Um, but at the time uh, when I was applying, I was unable to go in personally. So my mother went in on my behalf and she's a traditional woman. So she thought um, nutrition would be a great uh, field for me because when I have kids, I will know what to feed them. <laughs> I originally wanted environmental sciences. Uh, little did she know uh, that this was going to become my passion and I was going to pursue nutritional research um, and follow it in my graduate studies, in my master's and my PhD, and now currently <laughs> do, doing this in my postdoc. 
So um, just briefly, I did my undergraduate and master's in nutrition and dietetics at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. And then I came to Toronto to do my PhD with Dr. Harvey Anderson, where we investigated the role of folic acid and choline during pregnancy in the programming of uh, later life energy regulation in the offspring. And I fell in love with that field. And now currently I'm uh, a postdoc at the Drucker Lab uh, in the Lunenfeld uh, Tenenbaum Research Institute, investigating uh, the role of gut hormones and gut hormone agonists in the treatment of obesity and diabetes. Well, that's a little bit of a divergence, but still clearly important given that folate is absorbed through the GI tract and metabolism is a lot happening in the GI tract. So uh, I'm sure that this work earlier is, is translating to what you're doing now. Yes. Um, so you both were working Dr. Harvey's lab and obviously uh, he works on folate and like you said, choline. So I suspect this was one of the reasons this became one of your topics, uh, given that you're working in someone's lab who's really an expert in this area. Um, can you tell us what got you interested in the folate? Because you had a choice, I suspect, to go to his lab or someone else's lab. So there was something that drew you to uh, folate metabolism, maybe it was pregnancy. Uh, I'd like to hear from you about how you got involved. Yeah. So, um, Rola, can I go? Can I go first? Yeah, you can go first. Yeah. <laughs> sure. um, so I think for me, um, it was not as much folate, but rather the topic that interested me. Um, and that was probably one of the impetus of writing this paper too, uh, for the topic of folate and to really understand how it's overconsumed during pregnancy. Um, but I was really focused on maternal programming. So when I first uh, spoke with Harvey, um, he was in this active investigation or area of research um, that they looked at overconsumption of micronutrients and how that could affect the offspring health. Um, so that was really interesting to me because we always think of too much is not possible to be too much of a good thing. Um, but it could be. Um, but I always was wondering what would happen to the mother. And um, so when we think of in utero programming or nutritional programming, I think we always think of how diet can program the offspring, but nobody really, really considers what can actually happen to the mom and her nutritional intake is so critically important to support her brain, her actions, her metabolism, and could ultimately affect her postpartum health. Um, and most importantly, when we're during the concept of pregnancy, you think of macronutrient or energy requirements, but you don't think of, again, folate, this natural vitamin that's supposed to prevent neural tube defects of ever having some adverse consequences. Um, and this is always overlooked um, in the case of maternal nutrition and also how that could potentially program the offspring. Um, so I would say that that is the very first thing that attracted me to the area of folate research during pregnancy on how it can affect mom and kids. Um, and then I just grew to completely love it. And uh, it's really become a part of me. That's interesting. I'll, I'll get back to some of that, especially the part about the excess intake and how um, you look at not just the supplementation, but the fortification that is leading to some of this excess intake. It's not just prenatal vitamins for people who don't need it necessarily, but we have lots of exposure. It's something I found interesting within your paper. Rola, um, your perspective on this, was it uh, folate? Was it pregnancy? Was it babies? I agree with Emmy. It was not so much the vitamin, but it eventually became that. It was originally the concept of fetal programming that was so fascinating to me. The fact that that's such a critical time point of development uh, the minor, like the the most minor nutritional disturbances, can have such long term effects on the offspring. So that was uh, my interest, and that what got me interested in the field and applying to Dr. Anderson's lab. 
But uh, what I looked at was not only folic acid, but it's imbalanced with choline, because unlike the excessive intakes of folic acid in the population, we actually have choline intakes that are below uh, the adequate intakes. So it was interesting to examine this imbalance in the one carbon cycle and how that can lead to the uh, disruptions later in life in energy regulation. So uh, that was my interest in the uh, that's when I met Emmy. We did our PhD at the same time, and I was very lucky to have her in the program because we ended up working on distinct projects that are quite interconnected and ended up with a myriad of um, publications and work that was very related and relevant and made it much more fulfilling. I, I, th I think your insight on two things. One is doing a doctoral degree with a colleague, you end up becoming lifelong friends. I can tell you that from, from yeah. my own experience. <laughs> yes. um, also, um, I think your statement about the balance between nutrients is something also is overlooked sometimes. We look at the intake of one nutrient versus the other nutrient. And when we talk about you know, inhibitors and, and promoters of absorption, I, I think the other one that comes to my mind that's often discussed as far as the balance goes is omega-6, omega-3 fatty acids and what that balance is for mental health, for example. But I think the idea of choline, betaine, and folate, you know, all these things have to be in the right proportion. And uh, I think very good insight about doing more research in this area. Mm -hmm. When you did this review, even in your own research, was there anything that you found surprising um, that you didn't expect as you studied the literature and did the review? Um, I would say that uh, by doing the review, there's a lot less knowledge than I thought out there <laughs> on <laughs> the gaps in folate or awareness. And as much as it's um, becoming something that we're aware and we're recognizing, um, there is still a huge gap to fill, especially when it comes to clinical trials. Um, there is an abundance of preclinical data, uh, but there is variation in the experimental designs, the basal diets that are used, and just there isn't consistency in those designs of that animal study. Um, and then we have this lack of clinical research. Um, so I think that there is a long way to go when it comes to folate um, or in general of maternal nutrition. Um, and there's also a lack of studies that have been investigating the mother, which I think hopefully um, will start to be investigated in the near future again. Roland, you have anything to add to that? Uh, I agree with all of that. Uh, in addition to that, I would say also um, the importance of, as Emmy said, the reporting in clinical studies of what is considered high, what is considered low uh, for intakes, and uh, really going through these the study these studies to try and close that gap and controversy in the evidence. Uh, so that was really interesting to go into. And I think uh, what was also fascinating is looking at uh, the, the sexual uh, dimorphic differences uh, in the response uh, to these nutrients, as well as the postnatal um, interact, the postnatal environment and how that inter interacts with the maternal environment. I thought that was, uh, it added to the complexity in this field. And it was very fun to go through all that literature. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I'm fortunate to be working in a journal uh, that has just review articles. So I get to read a lot. And that's very enjoyable, at least for me, as someone who is in academics, just being able to sit down and absorb that information. You've been studying folate, you've been studying diets. How has your work in folate in, um, changed the way you consume food? And what do you do when you look at 
uh, food package? Are you looking at which ones are now fortified with folate? Are you changing your diet and trying to get that right balance? How has this influenced your personal lives? Um, I definitely can say it that it has. Um, I'm definitely more aware of the micronutrients that I'm consuming. Uh, before, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't really think of it. And I fit into that consensus that, oh, it's too much. It can't be a bad thing. Um, but now I start looking at nutrition fact labels over just the manufacturing labels or marketing labels. And there's quite a difference in what is promoted versus or marketed versus what's actually on the label and the amount that's on the label and the form of the nutrient that's on the label or lack the of health nutrient claims. within. Exactly. <laughs> um, and what you actually need to have a health claim on the label versus what's actually in the product. Um, so I think I am definitely more aware of my intake and I try and speak about that as much as possible. And I would say that every single one of my friends and family member gives me a call with a picture of a vitamin to see if this is good for me. Um, <laughs> so I have become uh, the nutritionist of the family and friends. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, for me, the looking at the supplements, uh, you, we always never, we, there are so many options available in the supermarket and all these uh, uh, health uh, stores. And then you think, yeah, okay, just vitamins, they're good for me. But there's not much of an understanding of the proper balance of all of these nutrients, whether everything is included or not, the doses that they're in, the, the chemical composition of them. And there's this notion of, oh, like, uh, taking too many vitamins is harmless. You're pretty much only making expensive urine. That's something that a lot of people would <laughs> <Yeah>. say. <laughs> but in fact, they do have long-term effects and we have seen that. Uh, and we've shown this in preclinical studies and to a certain extent in some clinical studies as well. So it's it, it creates this um, awareness of trying to stay reasonably within recommendations. Also, I've become more aware of all of the non-supplement non products that also have significantly high amounts of vitamins, like the vitamin water and such. And mm -hmm. then you become more aware of all of these different hidden sources in which you can consume all these foods and really exceed your recommendations in a way that it could be harmful. So uh, definitely greater awareness on that. I'm curious to see myself when I get pregnant. <laughs> 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 I might be changing then. <laughs> That is true. It is. There is this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have children yet, and uh, so we'll see. And being pregnant, there is this added level of anxiousness from a mom who wants to, um, like, wants to know what she needs to eat. There's a greater awareness on that, mm -hmm. and so there might. It's important to have the proper guidance on what kind of foods to consume, how to stay in a balanced diet to take the right supplements that not to exceed them when not necessary. So I, I think that's important. I, you know, you mentioned vitamin waters and things of that sort. And, you know, again, uh, I take those sometimes when I'm working out, exercising, I don't think about it. I always think of it of a, as a positive, not as a negative, but now I'm going to be a little bit more concerned about, you know, should I just drink plain water? and not necessarily something with all these extra vitamins in it. Um, the, the, the other thing I was thinking about is you mentioned something about food labels. Do you either have any recommendations on how maybe food labels should be changed in order to better inform the public about folate intake? Mm -hmm. That is a very tough question. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it is a very black and white question as well. Uh, definitely shades of gray. 
Um, I think one of the biggest factors that influences how we perceive food labels is also um, public knowledge and what we're taught starting from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, unfortunately, in the school system, at least in Canada, we don't get nutrition awareness um, growing education. up or education. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that we could change the labels, but without the proper education on how to read those labels, I think there will always be a gap. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have too much to add. On that yeah. one. <laughs> I think I think Health Canada has a better job than other does a better job than other countries like the US, for example, in uh, um, having a little bit more control over what kind of health claims and there's a little bit more regulation on those things. I think for me, it's honesty. I know it's hard to ask that from a company sometimes that is trying to sell a product, but more honesty and a little bit more like scientific integrity and uh, providing adequate information that's not over sensationalized when it comes to certain health claims. Um, that's good advice. Um, I think on both ends, the knowledge of the, of the public and what industry can do. Uh, industry follows policies and federal regulations. And yet, you know, there's always those little gaps that can occur in, in knowledge. Can you tell me, you spoke a little bit already about what you're doing now within your postdocs and some of the concepts that you have in your, your current research. Do you, I want to just sort of have you conclude by telling me what you think should be the next areas of research within the idea of folate and, and pregnancy and child outcomes. Um, is it more basic science? Is it you want the clinical research? large epidemiological studies. I mean, there's all this that we probably need all of them more than likely, but any specific research questions that you think should be asked at this point? Yeah. Um, well, I think that there already has, as mentioned, uh, been some really good advancements with the recent, ex- recent expert folate panels that have been put into place um, to help fill these knowledge gaps. Um, so, for example, we've already seen some manufacturers reduce the quantity of folic acid that's been added into some of the prenatal supplements. Um, so I do hope that more research can be directed of understanding that dose factor and what is necessary for a healthy, balanced pregnancy. Um, also, one thing that manufacturers are hopefully being more aware of and where research is really lacking is the difference between these folate forms. Um, so folic acid, the synthetic form versus this more bioactive form that on health labels is quote unquote the healthier form. Um, so it, it's really um, a lack of understanding of is this form truly healthier or is it only applied to a subset of population that has um, mutations or pathogenic variants in metabolizing folate, for example. Um, so I think that a lot of work should be um, figuring out this balance in both preclinical as well as clinical studies on the adequate dose and form for healthy pregnancy outcomes. Okay, that's important. I, I, the part about form was really important. That was a key part of your paper. And I think it's important for people to think about that. We talk about often what type of salts you should have for mineral supplementation, but we don't go often into the different forms of vitamins that you can have. Maybe retinol might be one of them, but the others tend to be uh, not as discussed or, or um, studied as much. So I think that's really important. Folate's a good example. I want to thank both of you for spending this time with me. Um, I've learned a lot, not just from your paper, but even from the short discussion that we've had. I recommend people read your paper, those especially interested in either folate pregnancy early programming of um, babies and chronic disease. You covered it all in your paper. 
And um, it's, it's a very well done paper and I'm sure it's gonna have an impact on, on people who do this research. So thank you for spending time with me. Thank you so much. Next month, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mateo de Lima Mercena and Mesa Mazera Bueno, who are at the Federal University of Alagoas in Brazil, and also working at the Federal University of Sao Paulo, where Mateo is studying for his doctoral degree. They are authors on a paper regarding the effects of dietary polyphenols in the glycemic, renal, inflammatory, and oxidative stress biomarkers in diabetic neuropathy. This was a systematic review with a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. I found this paper to be very interesting as it covered several important health outcomes that can be associated with the intake of polyphenols from diets and also from supplements. Additionally, they report findings on important biomarkers that can impact diabetic nephropathy. Although they did highlight that several studies that suggest polyphenols may decrease hemoglobin A1c, proteinuria, malondialdehyde concentrations, and even increase the glomerular filtration rate, they recognized that many of the studies they reviewed had a high risk of bias. And there is an important need to improve the quality of studies on polyphenols and their use with preventing and managing diabetic nephropathy. I'm sure that our conversations will bring light to what drew these authors to writing this paper on how it will stimulate future research on public health and clinical use of polyphenols. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nutrition Reviews, Conversations with the Authors. The Nutrition Reviews podcast was produced and edited by Eric Healy at the Western Region Public Health Training Center studio at the University of Arizona, Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health. Original music was created by Eli Ruiz. Funding for the podcast was provided by the International Life Sciences Institute. To get more updated information on nutrition, go to the journal's website at academic.oup.com slash nutrition reviews and subscribe to the podcast to be notified when the next episode is available. I'm Douglas Terran. Thank you for spending some time with us.